Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an ophthalmologist talks about what's important to know about glaucoma, the leading cause of blindness in people over 60. The eye is like a camera. Glaucoma is a condition where the cable that connects the camera to the brain, which is called the optic nerve, is affected. A representative from the Upstate New York Poison Center explains the 24-hour service, which handles more than 50,000 calls per year. If I do my job really well, we're going to see an increase in calls because people will feel comfortable with the word poison and know that there's an expert there for them. And a scientist discusses his work on the Resilience Project, exploring how inherited genetic variations promote resistance to certain diseases. Some people are probably born with a propensity to be protected from disease that they've inherited from their parents. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about the more than 50,000 cases handled by the Upstate New York Poison Center in 2019. Then, we'll talk with a scientist who is investigating genetic variations that promote resistance to schizophrenia and other diseases. But first, an ophthalmologist provides an overview of glaucoma. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Glaucoma is the leading cause of blindness for people over age 60, but there are ways to prevent blindness with early treatment. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Dr. Preeti Ganapathy. She's an assistant professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Ganapathy. Thank you so very much. I'm very happy to be here today. Well, let's start with a description of what glaucoma is. Sure. So glaucoma is what we call an optic neuropathy. The easiest way that I explain it to patients is the eye is like a camera. So you have two cameras that take pictures and they send information to the brain. So that's the computer that we use for processing these images. Glaucoma is a condition where the cable that connects the camera to the brain, which is called the optic nerve, is affected. It's interesting because we always talked about glaucoma in the past as though it was a pressure issue. And the pressure within the eye is connected to glaucoma, but it's not the whole story. So even if you have normal pressures, you can still develop optic nerve damage. But the the short, concise version is that it is a characteristic pattern of optic nerve damage that occurs in individuals, and we call it glaucoma. And so optic neuropathy, neuropathy is nerve damage mm -hmm. of that particular optic nerve? Right. Okay. So you mentioned pressure. Is the pressure from a fluid buildup or air, or what, what is causing pressure? Sure. So there is a, a circulation system within the eye itself that regulates the pressure. So a balloon, for example, has a certain pressure that it needs to maintain to keep the shape of the balloon. The eye also has a pressure that it needs to maintain to keep the shape of the eye, keep the health of the eye. Part of the eye makes fluid, part of the eye drains fluid, and I liken it to a sink. So there's a faucet and there's a drain, but if there's a blockage of the drain, then the water is going to overflow, and that's going to be too much for the health of the eye. What I didn't mention is that when we talk about glaucoma, obviously there's an optic neuropathy, but that is associated with vision loss. And that's really why it's important for patients to, to know or for people to understand what glaucoma is. When we talk about the vision loss associated with glaucoma, it actually occurs on the outside of our visual field, so out in the periphery first before it happens in the center. And that's why glaucoma is often found late versus conditions like cataract or conditions like macular degeneration where the center part of the vision is affected first so patients know or people know that this is going on. Whereas I have seen people with glaucoma who have significant vision loss but they don't know it because their center vision is okay. And they just don't 
recognize that the peripheral is getting less and less. Right, because the brain has such a, a profound ability to compensate for it, and things that happen slowly over time, we just slowly get used to, and we don't realize that it's happening. So is glaucoma a disease that affects only older people? You only see it in older? No, actually. Glaucoma is more commonly uh, associated with older age. So the older you are, the more at risk you are for getting glaucoma. But we treat anywhere from two weeks of age to, you know, 85, 90 years of age who have glaucoma because glaucoma is congenital as well. So babies can get glaucoma, and there's things that pediatricians look out for and they monitor for to make sure that we're not missing it. It's rare, but it occurs. And actually, I and uh, Dr. Rob Fechner here, we actually perform uh, pediatric glaucoma surgeries and treat pediatric glaucoma in the community. But generally speaking, if it's not something that's found earlier on, then it's something that occurs more commonly later in life. Interesting. Well, let's talk about the signs and symptoms. You mentioned the peripheral vision. Um, Does it just you wake up one day and you don't have peripheral vision, or does it get fuzzy, or what is that like? So glaucoma is not sudden, and that's why people don't notice it. There, there is a certain type of glaucoma, and I, I take that back. There's a certain type of glaucoma that occurs suddenly, and that is called acute angle closure glaucoma. This is a condition where all of a sudden the pressure goes from normal, which is between 10 and 20, roughly, millimeters of mercury, goes from normal, goes high, so up to 40. Those people know that they have a problem. They come in with eye pain, they come in with blurry vision, and that's something that is an emergency. And so we treat it emergently. Most often, glaucoma occurs slowly. So it's not something that you wake up and you realize that you have vision loss. It's something that you go about your business and you just, you you carry on. And then one day you go to an eye appointment and someone says, you might be at risk for glaucoma. And then we do testing and realize that there's a certain part of the vision that's already gone, which is why our goal is to catch it early because we want to prevent it from getting worse. You mentioned uh, that it can be inherited. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, is that how you predict who might develop glaucoma, just looking in their family to see whether older Anyone, anyone that has glaucoma should encourage their family members to get an eye exam. Absolutely. Because the only way we know how to check and see if someone is at risk for glaucoma is to do an eye exam. And the eye exam is not, and I want to point out, is not just glasses. It needs to be a dilated eye exam. So where they put drops in your eyes, where you can't drive, and they take a look inside of your eyes because that's the way you look at the optic nerve. You can also do testing where you can take pictures of the back of the eye and you can do visual field testing. But those tests need to occur before we can say, okay, you're not at risk for glaucoma. It's not just checking the pressure. So is that how it's diagnosed? You have to go through those exams to, and it can give you a definitive diagnosis that you have it or you're developing it? Yes. And, you know, the definitive diagnosis is funny because there's definitely people that we call glaucoma suspects because we're not sure and there are definitely people that you know we watch with high pressures that never develop glaucoma so there's a definitely a spectrum but doing a dilated eye exam and doing the testing and checking the pressure putting the whole puzzle together is the best way to keep track of people who um, might be at risk for glaucoma. Now, is that something an optometrist can do, or do you really need to go to an ophthalmologist? Because there's a difference. There is a difference, but it's not. An optometrist can absolutely screen for glaucoma as well. The only point that I make is that you want to go somewhere where they're actually doing a dilated eye exam. Because I know people who have gone to to just get eyeglasses and have never had an, uh, an eye exam, a thorough eye exam, and have glaucoma has been missed for that reason. But as an, an optometrist and an ophthalmologist are the same when it comes to screening for glaucoma. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. 
I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Preethi Ganapathy. She's an assistant professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences at Upstate. Well, let's talk about how glaucoma is treated. If you find someone that's got suspected glaucoma, what, what, what is the treatment? I talked earlier about how the eye is like a sink in a way, that there's a faucet that makes fluid and there's a drain that drains fluid. Despite us knowing that glaucoma is not only about the pressure within the eye, lowering the pressure inside of the eye is the only treatment for glaucoma that we have right now. So all the studies have shown that if you have glaucoma and your pressure is high, if we lower the pressure, that your glaucoma does better. And if you're, you have glaucoma and your pressure is normal, and we lower the pressure, your glaucoma does better. So we always focus right now clinically on lowering the pressure. And we can do it with eye drops. So we can use drops that turn down the faucet. We can use drops that help decrease the um, or increase the outflow of fluid out of the eye. We can use lasers that help the drain work better. And if these things don't work, then we can look at surgical options to either use laser to decrease the production of fluid or to make a new drain in the eye essentially to really uh, help the fluid flow out of the eye and keep the pressure low. So you mentioned eye drops. Does Mm -hmm. everyone sort of start with that to see if those are Yes. So everyone starts with either eye drops or laser, actually. A recent study showed that laser is as effective as a initial eye drop. So depending on what uh, the person in front of me wants, we, we talk about the benefits and the uh, negatives of using a drop versus a laser. And everybody's different. So what treatment is best for them is dependent on them. So if you start taking the eye drops, is there a chance that they will fix this and you can stop taking the eye drops and you no longer have glaucoma? Does it, does it cure it or is it a maintenance thing where you're going to be taking drops the rest of your life? Most often it's a maintenance thing where you will be taking drops the rest of your life. Glaucoma is a disease in the way that say diabetes or high blood pressure is. These are lifelong diagnoses that you carry with you and There are certain things that can help. So say if you have mild glaucoma, you may be on a drop. And when you have cataract surgery, that may lower your pressure. Sometimes that can lower your pressure. And these are intricacies that maybe we don't have time to discuss right now. But, um, or we don't have the avenue to discuss it right now. But certain things that may drop the need for a medication But most often, if someone has started on a medication, this is something that they're signing up for for a long period of time. How else does life change for someone who has glaucoma? Are they going to be able to still drive? Glaucoma that's caught early is the best kind of glaucoma because what I haven't said yet is that glaucoma cannot be reversed. So everything we do is to keep it where it is and keep it from getting worse. That's why it's so important to get diagnosed early so that we can prevent it from getting worse. If you have mild stages of glaucoma, we can diagnose it before it even causes a vision vision problem. And that is really what the ideal state would be, where maybe you're on one drop and you can go about your life the way that you always have been. Now, when glaucoma gets more and more advanced, it starts moving from the periphery into the center part of the vision. And if the center part of the vision is affected, then it can uh, disturb the activities of daily living, like driving and reading and uh, other things that one would want to do. And our goal is to stop it before it reaches that stage. Are there activities that someone with glaucoma, uh, that they're not able to do because it has an impact on glaucoma or makes it worse? So generally speaking, people with glaucoma can do anything. The one 
thing that we uh, say historically or anecdotally is activities that may raise the pressure inside of the eye. So Valsalva maneuvers, weightlifting, things like that, and say yoga where you're upside down for prolonged amounts of time. But that's only when you have glaucoma. If you don't have glaucoma and you're not at risk, then obviously I wouldn't say don't do yoga. Absolutely everyone should, um, should be active. But generally speaking, you can go about your daily activities without a problem, even after you have glaucoma. I've heard of marijuana use uh, being used to treat glaucoma. So the interesting thing about marijuana use is that it does decrease the pressure in the eye. The problem is that it only decreases the pressure in the eye for a short amount of time. So we don't use it as a treatment for glaucoma because one would have to use marijuana constantly to actually have a profound effect on the eye. But research is being done to try and target the cannabinoid receptors in a drop form or in a form that's more accessible to the eye that maybe doesn't have as much of the systemic effects so that we can still work and and do um, the things that we need to do every day. Is there anything people can do to prevent glaucoma from developing? The the key is that if, if you have a family member with glaucoma or if, if you are above the age of, say, 40 or 50, it's important to make sure that you're getting the eye exams that you need to, to identify that you are at risk for glaucoma so you can be um, monitored closely. The only way that we can prevent glaucoma from getting worse is to identify it early and stop the progression then. Well, thank you to Dr. Preethi Ganapathy, an assistant professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be right back with a segment on the Upstate New York Poison Center. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're talking about the Upstate New York Poison Center, which you may be surprised to learn has a service area of 54 counties, pretty much all of New York State outside of New York City. The Poison Center is located on the campus of Upstate Medical University in Onondaga County in Syracuse. And here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk with me today is Lee Livermore. He's the public education coordinator for the Poison Center. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Lee. Thank you for having me. Now, from what I understand, the Upstate New York Poison Center handles more than 50,000 cases per year from healthcare providers, 911 operators, schools, the general public. Is that right? Yeah, yes. that, that is correct. And it will fluctuate a little bit. Uh, and those are calls coming into our Poison Center. Um, the number is much higher when we look at the total accumulative where we call back to parents uh, if we recommend the child to or the person who's exposed to be at home. We also follow up on cases that are in a healthcare institution. So that, I mean, that's, you're busy. That's, that's more than, that's probably 150 cases a day, roughly? Yes. So and how many, how big is your staff? Um, our staff, we have 16 C-SPIs um, on uh, staff. And what I mean by that is, like everything in the medical world, is acronyms. So a C-SPI stands for a Certified Specialist in Poison Information. And it's a very unique niche in the medical world that um, someone usually will uh, come to the Poison Center and they'll have uh, a degree as an RN in nursing and have some sort of emergency management experience, ICU, ambulatory, uh, emergency room. And we also have pharmacists, uh, which make up a, a good piece of understanding medications and the toxicology end of it. So then they go through a really rigorous process of about four months of just studying about our systems, and then they get paired up with an experienced specialist. 
and each specialist is required to take 2,000 human exposure calls. And at the end of that completion, they're eligible to sit for a certification exam that they get the pleasure of repeating about every five to seven years. Wow. Okay. So mostly the people in the Poison Center are nurses, pharmacists, physicians, Yes, that is correct. Uh, when I say the C-SPIES that answers the phones, um, on the backup end of it, we have a staff of toxicologists and a managing medical director, our administrative director. Uh, so we're prepared at every level to handle a case. So if you look at the specialist answering the phone, that's the front line. And then when cases need the higher level of uh, knowledge and experience, then it gets elevated up to a toxicologist. So what's the busiest time of year for the Poison Center? You know, I wish I had one. That's a, that's a question that I get often. It fluctuates um, every year, and it depends on what's happening in current trends. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a peanut butter scare so uh, where there was tainted peanut butter on the shelves, or we might have a virus or some, something that'll hit the news waves, and then we tend to see an increase in calls. Um, but there's really no one time of the day or one time of the year that we really see um, a, a noticeable spike. Because it's obviously 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You, you get calls in the middle of the night for poisonings too, right? Absolutely. Um, in some of those cases, we tend to see maybe more cases that are coming from an emergency room department. Um, or we still get cases, calls from home. Now, how many of the calls you receive have to do with kids under the age of five? Um, approximately under uh, 50% of the calls, and this is something that has changed over the years. So we do know that when you say the word poison or poison control, uh, the vast majority of people think, oh, this is a child that got into a cleaning product or medication or something like that. Um, but in recent years, we've seen a higher level of acuity calls, uh, especially calls involving substances of abuse and misuse. And so more cases are showing up in the emergency room. And a lot of those are involving poly drug use. So we're tending to see the trend in the line that less calls from the home or general public and more increase in calls from healthcare facilities. And poly drug use means taking... Oh, somebody has taken more than one substance. So they may have mixed alcohol with some sort of medication or added some sort of legal or illegal substance with it. And then that tends to lead to a lot of complications. Well, I know you've analyzed some of the activities for the year of 2019. Let's talk about the top poisonings you saw in, in children um, last um, year. What will be surprising about this answer is cosmetics. And although cosmetics like eyeshadow and lipstick? Cosmetics like um, beauty products, bath and uh, beauty products, huh. uh, hair detangler, shampoos. Uh, let me paint a picture for you that if there's a young child in the household and um, typically in, the, uh, in and around the bathtub, there's going to be a basket with all these great smelling bubble bath, hair detangler, those sort of items. And those products are not regulated to have child resistant packaging. So it may smell good and they might think it tastes good. So the exposure is at that level. And then we don't normally think of perfumes and cologne and other beauty products, uh, hairsprays and colognes, that those sort of things are readily available. And so we tend to see a lot of exposures in that way. I didn't realize they were poison. Well, a poison, by definition, is anything that's harmful to the human body. So if it has an adverse reaction, and it's happened to all of us, that I'm sure all of our listeners have been poisoned at least once in their lifetime. The good news is they're still here with us. But if you get something in your eyes, splashed or sprayed on your skin, if you've breathed something in, or if you've ingested something, either a liquid or a solid, um, and you've had an adverse reaction, Reaction from that. So it could be something like uh, food poisoning, or if you're working with um, some toxic chemicals, paint stains and things of that nature, and you breathe it in and it makes you a little lightheaded, then you're having an adverse reaction to it. 
This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm, a, I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Lee Livermore, the Public Education Coordinator for the Upstate New York Poison Center. So cosmetics, what are the other issues um, for children that you've seen the past year? Sure. It's uh, household products, and um, that could literally be anything, cleaning products, any items that we happen to be using. Uh, we did have a couple of years ago the big spike with uh, a spike in calls with uh, pods, laundry detergents, and it's the I concentrated stuff that you would put in the dishwasher or use in the laundry. Um, And when the product first came out, there wasn't any child-resistant packaging or any safety features. So uh, it's squishy, brightly colored, smell good. Kids could get into it and they would either bite down or squeeze it in their hand and it would get sprayed in their eyes or if they chewed it it'd go down in their throat and we're always concerned about aspiration so something going down the wrong tube and getting in the lungs and then i'm sure medications kids getting into medications that they shouldn't be getting into and things of that nature right the number one reason an unintentional poisoning happens is because of the look-alike factor and this is for people of all ages so something looks like something else and medicine looks like candy when you take it out of its original container and that's one of the reasons and ways that a poisoning will happen is that a product is being used it's taken out of its original container and then it's left available for someone to get exposed to so if you happen to be pouring some liquids and uh, you're using a measuring cup or a regular tumbler at home, you could pour a cleaning product in there and it may look like either clear liquid or juice or Kool-Aid or something in that sense. And it's very easy to get distracted. And then somebody comes around behind you and thinks that it's something good to consume. Well, let's talk about what is the best way for people to reach the Poison Center? Well, we want them to program the number for the Poison Center into their cell phones. And that number is one 800-222-1222. And it's available 24 hours a day, every day of the year. The amazing thing about this that the vast majority of the general public doesn't realize is that you can call that number Your call will always be answered by an expert in toxicology and poisoning, as well as it doesn't have to be an emergency. If you just had a question, maybe you brought home some new medication, uh, maybe you're worried about a medicine interaction, you can call the Poison Center just about information as well, because our experts have the ability to look up any product that's manufactured in the United States, and we can tell you exactly how to use that product safely and what the potential toxicity might be. So does that number work anywhere in the nation? Yes, the 1-800 number is a national number. So no matter where you are in the United States or our U.S. territories, you dial that number and your call gets routed to the closest poison center from where the call originated. So I could program that number into my phone and go on vacation out west and if something happened, I, I might get you or I might get the poison center near me. Where exactly. I'm okay. Is there any charge or do you bill my insurance company? Or? No, we're, uh, we're really, really blessed that uh, Poison Center is funded through federal, state, and at Upstate Medical University is our host institution, as to which we are very proud to be supported by them. But there's no call or there's no charge for the call or the services. I say that we're a non-revenue generating entity, but the savings on the backside to our healthcare w- world is just amazing. Well, walk me through what happens when someone calls the Poison Center. What questions should they be prepared to answer? If there was an exposure, we would like for them to hopefully have the product with them. and That way they could read the name of the product and would be able to look it up. One of the first things our specialists do is they'll make the person feel calm. And then they'll ask them the history that they need in order to make a proper assessment. So they'll ask the age, the weight, the gender, what the product was, if they know how much of the product was ingested. 
and then we can run calculations. So if it might be some pills, you know, very often we've had a scenario where uh, a parent will walk into a room uh, like the bathroom or the bedroom and a child is playing with a pill bottle and it's open and there's pills on the floor. Now, we don't know how many may have or may not have been ingested. So when we get that history, we're able to make a solid assessment. And if there's any question whatsoever, we'll recommend that they go to uh, an emergency room. I was going to say, so you can help a person determine whether they need to go to the emergency room, perhaps, or, or not. That is true. And as a frontline uh, defense, if you will, very often, more than 80% of those cases from home can be managed right at home, that uh, someone just got a little taste of something, or they may have taken a double dose. And so they're able just to stay home, and the specialist will offer them the treatment that they need. And then if there's some additional concerns, we do a follow-up call back to the home, as well as back to healthcare facilities, just to make sure that the person who was exposed is doing better. Now, in addition to the calls you receive, I know you have staff who do public education. So how does that work? Are you responding to requests from schools or are you contacting schools to to try to get particular information out? I I think it works both ways. Um, It's an amazing thing with public education. If if I do my job really well, then people are going to have the number for the poison center, but they're going to know how to prevent a poisoning. If I do my job really well, we're going to see an increase in calls because people will feel comfortable with the word poison and know that there's an expert there for them. So uh, with one of the crises that uh, we're experiencing is the vaping crisis. And I started doing some programs in middle and high schools around that. And then the school superintendents started sharing my contact information. And then I was receiving calls from a number of different school districts asking me to come in and share this information with their students. So it works both ways. So vaping's been a popular topic recently. Are there other topics that you kind of focus on in the schools? Um, Cannabis is is a very interesting topic, and it's one that I think as a nation we're struggling with, that as more and more states legalize it for medicinal and recreational use, um, we're going to see all the ripple effects. Uh, You could put it in the same perspective as alcohol. Alcohol is legal, but it has age limits, and it is a toxin. Um, Vaping products have nicotine, which is a toxin, and it's also an addictive element. So even though tobacco products are legal, uh, there's a lot of in question about these vaping products. And then, of course, with the uh, CDC labeled the Evali, which was e-cigarette vaping-associated lung injury. And in August of 2019, we saw this incredible spike in people showing up in the emergency with severe pulmonary injuries. Um, It seems to have died down, but it just shows you how easily something could appear to be legal, and then all of a sudden there could be a lot of danger behind it. Well, thank you to Lee Livermore, the Public Education Coordinator for the Upstate New York Poison Center. Their number, once again, 1-800-222-1222. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a scientist talks about genetic variations that promote disease resistance. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Genetic resilience is a complex biopsychosocial phenomenon, and Upstate Medical University is fortunate to have a leading researcher in this area, and he has a talent for explaining things that are complicated. Dr. Stephen Glatt is director of the Psychiatric Genetic Epidemiology and Neurobiology Laboratory at Upstate, and he's here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio. Thank you for being here, Dr. Glatt. It's my pleasure. So is there a simple definition for genetic resilience? Well, I think the most simple definition is that 
some people are probably born with a propensity to be protected from disease that they've inherited from their parents. So is that sort of the opposite of being born with something that gives you a propensity to develop a disease? Absolutely. In the context of the disorders we study, which are mental illnesses like schizophrenia, autism, and bipolar disorder, we know that a lot of the risk is inherited. In fact, the majority of the risk is inherited. Now, that doesn't mean the environment doesn't play a part. It does. But we study that genetic risk very heavily, and we have found a lot of genes that put people at risk, genes they've inherited from their parents that put them at risk. And on the flip side, we're just scratching the surface of other genes that protect some people from those risks that they've inherited. So let's talk for a minute. What causes our genes to change from one generation to the next? Well, genes change very slowly in the population. Mutations occur, but a lot of times they're repaired. That's what our bodies do, and that's why we're not all severely mutated. We have DNA repair mechanisms. But sometimes subtle variations are introduced into our genomes, through mutation, and they hang on because they don't cause something disastrous, and then they get passed on through the generations. But when you add them to other subtle mutations, then you get a bigger effect on an outcome that puts you at risk. And these mutations, if there are going to be some, are these taking place during fetal development? or And once we're born, our genome is set? Or are there changes that happen after? The, the mutations we're talking about generally are inherited mutations, which occur in the gametes, so the sperm or the egg, as they're being formed. But there's also the possibility that people can acquire mutations in their own lifetime. These are called somatic mutations. But the kind we're focused on are these inherited mutations. Okay. Well, tell us about the Resilience Project, because you've been involved in that for how long? Well, it's been about three or four years. And... The origins of this are interesting in that we saw the writing on the wall when it comes to studying risk factors. There are so many people in our field of psychiatric genetics who are intent on identifying genes that put people at risk, and we're among that group. But we started to make so much progress, we thought, once we understand risk, what are we going to do with that? And I think we're one of the few groups that looked ahead and thought, if we can study people who are at very high genetic risk, what is protecting some of those people from that risk? Why, for example, is someone who's at a high genetic risk for schizophrenia not showing schizophrenia? And an obvious answer is, well, maybe there's things in their environment that protect them. But another answer, and, and as a geneticist, an answer that I've been interested in looking for is, maybe there are also other things in their genome that protect them so that no matter how many mutations they acquire that put them at risk, these resilience factors in their genome actually can buffer that risk and keep them from getting sick. So we started that pursuit maybe four, four or five years ago, and it changed our whole vision about how we do our research. So now after slogging away, we showed that this principle actually works. We found some genes that protect against the risk for schizophrenia and published that paper last year. And then we applied for a grant from the National Institute of Aging to apply the same principle to Alzheimer's disease. And that's what we're working on now. As of September, we received this grant to study resilience to the risk for Alzheimer's disease. Let me ask you, though, on schizophrenia, are all cases of schizophrenia because of a genetic mutation? No. They're not. Okay. So the, the leading theory about the etiology or causes of schizophrenia is that it's not nature or nurture. It's both. It's almost always a case where you've inherited many mutations that increase your risk, but you also have some factors in your environment, usually stressors, that interact with that risk to make you sick. There are probably some very rare cases of schizophrenia that are caused only by genetic mutation, and there are probably some very rare cases that are only caused by environmental factors. But mostly, it's almost always an interaction between nature and nurture. And so you've looked at people who have some of these mutations, but have some other mutations that sort of offset that risk. That's right. In fact, we've looked at people at the highest measurable genetic risk. Okay. These are people who don't have schizophrenia, but based on their genetics, 
you would guess that they would because they're at such elevated risk. They possess so many of the genetic risk factors. And do they have family members that have schizophrenia Generally, too, they don't. Generally, huh. they don't. Interestingly, they've got all these mutations that put them at risk, but none of their family members are affected, nor are they affected. So we thought, well, what must be protecting them? And again, it could be they just have a, a good nurture, a good environment, but it might also be that they have some good genetics that protect them. How do you find these people? Like how would a person wouldn't necessarily know that they have the mutations for schizophrenia, right? Yes, so that's true. So this type of work is only possible by studying literally tens of thousands of people. And here at Upstate, we've studied thousands of people, but on our own, that's not enough. So we joined an international consortium called the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium, which is the one of the largest collaborative groups in the world. And we're proud at Upstate to be a part of this. We put our our subjects together with subjects collected from Germany and China and South Africa and all over the world to come up with a good estimate of risk and then to find those people who have high risk but are resilient. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Glatt. He's a professor at Upstate and the director of the Psychiatric Genetic Epidemiology and Neurobiology Laboratory. And today we're talking about genetic resilience. Now, you mentioned um, that you just got a grant to sort of look at what you've looked at with schizophrenia, but this time with Alzheimer's disease. Tell, tell me about that. Well, I'm, I've not been... Uh, concentrated in my career on Alzheimer's disease, but my career has kind of hopscotched around from disorders of interest, starting with the study of schizophrenia. And then when my kids were being born, I started to study developmental disorders because I was interested in those disorders. And now that we're all getting older, I thought, let me focus on disorders of aging. But it's actually also true that this is a big societal interest because of the graying of the nation. And so there's a lot of funding available to study Alzheimer's disease. This has been identified uh, as a research priority um, in the community. So I said, let's try to apply this approach to Alzheimer's disease because it has known genetic risks, but also because there's a lot of potential for it to have a big impact. Well, we have uh, heard about the genes that you know lead to Alzheimer's, so to speak, but um, I had not heard that there was research looking into genes that maybe have a protectant, right? Yeah, and we think this is just our novel niche because very few groups are looking at the genetic factors that actually protect. Most people are trying to find those risk factors that put you at risk. And we're saying, we know enough about what puts you at risk. Now let's understand how people avoid that risk. So do you have a similar pool of patients that have, is it the APOE genes? We do. So APOE is the largest known risk factor for late onset Alzheimer's disease. And we're doing our study to focus on people who have the so-called risk variant of APOE. It's called APOE epsilon 4 allele. And this is a very strong risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. It doubles your chances of Alzheimer's disease. But there's plenty of people who have that allele and don't have Alzheimer's disease. Those people are really interesting for us to study. We feel like studying people who are at risk but don't develop the illness will give us just a different window into what causes illness, what's protective, how can we maybe intervene to foster resilience among people who are at risk so they don't develop the illness, and maybe also to develop better therapeutics. Does Alzheimer's, is it uh, thought of as being nature and nurture where there's um, where it requires both? It's absolutely the case. That's yeah, it's both. It's the combination of genes and environmental factors. Does it share anything with schizophrenia? Are there any similarities that you've seen between the two diseases? Uh, not much, honestly. I think when you, when you talk about psychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and depression, they share a lot, not just in terms of the symptoms, but the genetics. And in fact, it's almost a truism that if you find a genetic risk factor for schizophrenia, it will also be found to be a risk factor for bipolar disorder and depression. That's... That's almost the nature of it these days. But the same is not true and does not extend between psychiatric disorders and neurologic disorders, like and neurodegenerative disorders, like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. There was a nice study published that looked at the so-called genetic sharing between all these sets of disorders. And psychiatric disorders just share a whole host of genes in common. It's almost like there's a set of genes that puts you at risk for a psychiatric disorder 
And then there's another set of genes that puts you at risk for a neurodegenerative disorder. So there isn't a lot in common between them. So I understand you've done some work on um, genetic resilience having to do with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah, that's true. I think actually back to the origins of my research on resilience probably did start with PTSD because when I was in San Diego before coming back to upstate New York, we had access to U.S. Marines who were getting ready to deploy, back then it was to Iraq and Afghanistan. And we studied these guys in the desert while they were training to be deployed. So we had kind of pre-deployment profiles of these guys. And of course, they go away to very traumatic combat environments. They come back and maybe 20% of them have PTSD, but 80% don't. And certainly that's an interesting contrast to study resilience because they've all been exposed to the same environmental traumas, essentially. But what protects some people from developing PTSD in the face of that trauma? What we found was really interesting in that the guys who go on to develop PTSD before they went away actually had a heightened immune and inflammatory gene expression signature in their peripheral blood. And so I think if you have lower activation of those genes at baseline, that may be a protective factor against environmental trauma and the cause of PTSD. Interesting. Do you think that uh, one day in the future, we're going to have our genome sequenced at birth and then have a, a map, so to speak, of what diseases to sort of look out for? I do. Looking long term, I don't know when that will be reduced to practice, but I envision a time where every child born, we know their genome from the start. And that gives us a map to their strengths and their vulnerabilities, but also gives us a window to follow kids throughout their whole development and their lifetime so we can understand how genes uh, relate to developmental trajectories. Are there ideas for how to identify people who lack this a particular resiliency, say to schizophrenia or Alzheimer's, and then be able to intervene to fix that or prevent the development? Not yet, but we're taking a long view on this in that if we can identify genetic resilience factors, then there's also going to be a pool of individuals who have very high genetic risk and don't have any resilience factors that become affected with illness. But on the flip side, there may be cases that are at very low genetic risk and they end up with the illness anyway. And those are people whom we need to study very intensively with regard to their environment because their risk but also their resilience may be more dependent on the environmental factors. So there are a range of risk factors out there and in any one individual, their personal etiology could be more or less genetic, more or less environmental. Well, this is fascinating work. Thank you so much to Professor Stephen Glatt from Upstate Psychiatric Genetic Epidemiology and Neurobiology Laboratory. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Laura Carroll from Washington, D.C., writes about food, travel, and fairy tales. She sent us a unique take on grief and how to handle it in her prose piece, Recipe for Lemon Cupcakes. One, take your grief, form it into a small ball in your hands. Two, Zest a lemon, or three, or five. There are so many in your mother's kitchen, and you have to do something with them. They can't just molder in the fridge. Three, chop the lemons and put them in a saucepan with sugar and water. Boil, stir, simmer, stir more. It will eventually turn to marmalade. Four, add your grief to the marmalade. It's already bitter. It can take it. Five, measure out your dry ingredients in a bowl. Mix and set aside. Six, beat up defenseless eggs and butter and sugar until light and fluffy. Add vanilla extract and lemon zest and beat again. Seven, you forgot to preheat the oven, didn't you? Turn it on now. Eight, add the dry ingredients to the wet ingredients in batches. 
mixing thoroughly and scraping down the sides with a spatula after each addition. Nine. You have a cupcake tin somewhere, don't you? Find it, along with the leftover cupcake papers from several Halloweens ago, the ones with skulls. Ten. Spoon the cupcake batter into the tin until each papered cup is half full. Carefully place a spoonful of marmalade in the center of each cupcake, then cover with additional batter. 11. Bake for 20 minutes at 350 or until a toothpick inserted in the center of a cupcake comes out clean, except for the marmalade. 12. While the cupcakes bake, raid your parents' liquor cabinet. Pour yourself a glass of the single estate cognac that your father never had the opportunity to drink and bring the limoncello to the kitchen. 13. Beat up another defenseless stick of butter to make the frosting and add more powdered sugar than you think the butter can hold. Keep beating it until it's mostly incorporated. Then add a liberal dose of the limoncello and watch the alcohol smooth out the frosting as you continue to beat. 14. Remove the cupcakes from the oven, allow to cool. 15. Impro improvise a pastry bag from a Ziploc sandwich bag Pipe the limoncello frosting onto the cooled cupcakes. 16. Share the finished cupcakes with your assembled family. Everyone agrees they are delicious. No one comments on the bitterness of the marmalade inside. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, frontal temporal lobe dementia. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.